Welcome to our episode 166 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. This is actually a companion to episode 165 where we did a news roundup and delayed the interview. We are interviewing today Kevin Mandia, the CEO of FireEye, an intelligence-led security company and one of the the fastest growing security companies, uh, large security companies uh, uh, in the market. Kevin, welcome. Hey, thank you, Stuart. It's great to be doing this. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted you could do it. Uh, and uh, uh, what I thought I'd start out with is the report that uh, uh, FireEye released uh, called Cyber sure. Espionage is Alive and Well, APT32 and the Threat to Global Corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I what was interesting about it is I didn't know we were up to 32. Uh, uh, is, this a, is this a new? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a new one, and we don't have clever names. I mean, behind the scenes, I think we call this group Ocean Lotus, but we don't have that super cool naming machine. We just call them by integers. So we have APT1 through APT32, and in reality, it's not 32 different groups. Sometimes over time, like I think we had APT Group 8, and we had an APT Group 10, and when you respond to breaches every day for decades, uh, we learned over time, wow, APT8 and APT10 are the same guy. Yeah. So uh, it's not necessarily 32 separate groups, but uh, different nomenclature. Well, I wonder if the APT groups are going to start bragging over being APT1 or APT2. It's sort of like being Bob at Microsoft. Yeah. It had to be there at the start. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so APT32, uh, your report says it's uh, – you, you assess that it's affiliated with the Vietnamese government, not mm-hmm. necessarily the government, but, you know, I, especially yeah. in Asia, these things tend to be a little uh, uh, cloudy mm-hmm. about whether they're working for themselves or the government or both. Um, uh, right. What can, can you tell us a little bit about what APT32 actually is doing? Who they're targeting? What kind of tools they're using? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, it's obvious that whoever's behind the intrusions that we've labeled APT32 are aligned with the national interests of Vietnam. And Stuart, one of the things you know I would like to say before I do that is kind of tell you that since 2004. We've been responding to security breaches, and we always cataloged and trace evidence, and we created a nomenclature to do that uh, so that we could do attribution just categorically. Like, we didn't always do attribution, say, oh, it's these three guys in St. Petersburg, or it's these folks hacking out of uh, whatever country, Iran or China. We always did it just to scale our forensicators. And to make sure that, you know, the trace evidence, if it went into buckets, it allowed us to say, hey, if you're responding at an intrusion at company B, those are the same guys that hit company A. Over time, though, sometimes uh, when we catalog all this trace evidence, you start seeing real, real trends. And I just wanted to share some of the things that we look for in attribution so that we can apply them to the APT32 discussion. Sure. But one is always the infrastructure used. And, and I think most modern nations that do computer intrusions actually separate their offense into at least two groups. And by the way, I think it's more than that mm-hmm. uh, based on industry and other things. But one group does nothing but spray and pray attacks to hack into places like universities or small to medium businesses. I mean, they don't target them. I'd say they're not targeted attacks. 
but it's the hack front nodes that ultimately become the beachhead to, ha- to use to hack the real intended targets. And that infrastructure gets maintained by one group but potentially used by another group. So this is kind uh, of so most this nations. Is, yeah, this is sort of the B team, and their job is to see who the targets of opportunity are that they can compromise. And I assume they use them for their compromises yeah. for C two as well as for uh, um, discovering drop sites. You got it. Okay. Yeah, and it may not even be the B team. There may be A's on it, but it's less discriminate attack. They just need the anonymity. Uh, and, and an infrastructure to provide anonymity. So the requirements would be they hack the university. That's a common theme to a lot of these front nodes. And they have root-level access so they can delete their track should they choose to do it. And now they've got a node where they can they, they remain anonymous behind it. You know, their who is registration techniques, who the uh, hacking groups target, what they steal, the malware they use, the development environment for their malware, the naming conventions. One of the things we've always had that's kind of unique is what are the passphrases that the attackers use? What language is that passphrase in? What character key set is probably on the keyboard when they are using it? Mm-hmm. What is the naming convention of the files they create on victim machines or the directories they create? Uh, a lot of different groups, if they're stealing 10 files, will compress those files and encrypt them with a certain passphrase, but then they name them in certain ways as they do it. What are the lure documents used? What's the scale of the operations? Um, it, whether the mo- their, uh, malware is modular or not. And by the way, I can riff on this for a long time because we have 650 different criteria. And uh, in the case of APT32, as we applied a lot of this criteria, it's not as direct as APT Group 1, which was PLA units. 61398, where we had responded to them hundreds of times over a seven-year period. APT32, that designation, we've kind of been looking at that and thinking about it for maybe the last eight months or so. And it's been about two to three years where we've seen them active. So, you know, that might mean they've been active for five years or eight years. Uh, but for us to start bucketizing and categorizing what they're doing, I'd say it's been about two and a half. So the first thing at the time I, I think I remember hearing about them was when EFF complained that they had actually been mm-hmm. targeted by a Vietnamese government uh, hack uh, mm-hmm. and that others had been uh, targeted. And they were pretty clear about attribution. Uh, that was 2013, yeah. I think. Uh, um, so you think that was early in uh, – APT32's career as an international hacker? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the challenges I always have, though, is I can't tell you how much visibility fire I have. I can't tell you if we responded to 2% of their activities or 99%. And my gut tells me it's way closer to the 2%. So it wouldn't surprise me that they had been active for far longer than we're knowledgeable about. All we know is the lowest bounds of their activity, and we know they've compromised at least and it's not a big number, but we know they've compromised at least 12 different organizations that we've uh, 
worked on her system. One of the things I was struck by in the report is you said that uh, a Chinese security uh, researcher, Sky Eye Labs, works, it's part of uh, Zihu uh, 360, um, mm-hmm. uh, put out a, a report about the activities of this uh, uh, mm-hmm. attacker. Um, and, and that raised a whole bunch of questions. Uh, uh, one, is there a big forensics industry inside China doing more or less what FireEye does for the rest of the world? You, you know, you, you may not believe this, but I don't think we've been hired by a Chinese entity to respond to a breach. So I shocked. can't tell you too much about what's going over there. Yeah. Uh, and, and in general, in security, you may accidentally have to pick sides. You know, we haven't, but we just go where, where the intrusions are. And just so happens we respond to a lot of intrusions that we equate or attribute to the Chinese government or state-sponsored actors out of that nation. So I don't know. It would seem utterly reasonable that they do have groups that do this. Uh, I can't imagine that China is not have uh, some targeting going on uh, on the Internet. I can tell you as I travel the world, uh, Stuart, and I meet different representatives of different nations, you know, primarily in the, in the Middle East, uh, when you sit down with their defense secretary or their equivalent or their intelligence community, almost every nation during the discussions I have will ask, what about an offensive capability and, and how, how do you develop those? So I think everybody's getting on the map. There'll be, and based on ideological differences, I think Asia is going to be a hotbed of cyber activity. Yes. I think China is going to be targeted and part of that. And I think that we're seeing it heat up even now as uh, we do operations over there. So I haven't responded in China. I don't believe our folks have responded to breaches there, but I can't fathom that they're not targeted. And, and not in the game, both on offense and defense. Yeah, I, I, I'm, that's interesting that you don't actually see the kind of forensic analysis coming out of China, mm-hmm. because obviously mm-hmm. the, the Chinese and the U.S. governments and Chinese companies and mm-hmm. U.S. companies all ought to be a little worried about Vietnamese hacking, uh, just as they all ought to be a little worried about North Korean hacking, maybe us more than them, mm-hmm. probably. Uh, and so um, it, it, it didn't surprise me that the Chinese would be worried about this, uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I was—I uh, I just assumed that there was somebody who was doing the equivalent of the, all the attribution reports that uh, come out of the United States. Uh, uh, so far, you haven't seen a lot of that. You know, I don't look for it personally. I've always been a first-hand knowledge kind of person, mm-hmm. so I get my knowledge from reading all forensic reports. Yep. My gut tells me right now that there'll end up being a fire I got that listen to this podcast and is like, Mandia, we've been reading reports out of China for years. <laughs> yes. Where the hell were you on that one? <laughs> so I just don't think, for whatever reason, it's very rare Well, I'll pick up a report that somebody else has written and, and and consume it. And I can tell you, even in the APT32 report, when we started referring to other folks and how they refer to it, a lot of that is just because the nomenclature is different and we're trying to link researchers in that, hey, when we say APT32, we mean what, you know, this group labeled something else. Right. And then the second thing, you know, when we do attribution, almost always there's, there's other evidence that we don't put into the report, and it could be based on, um, you know, in the case of PLA Unit 61398, one of their soldiers, we had been reading their, you know, the email, and we just didn't want to pinpoint it 
uh, an individual when we did that attribution because I didn't know what's the risk or repercussions to a specific individual when doing uh, that attribution. We have uh, about 220 threat analysts globally, and every once in a while, one of those threat analysts, a human asset, is very well aware of, uh, you know, who might be behind the breach based on whoever they're communicating with or whatever, and, and we just don't put that detail in. In lieu of that detail, sometimes we'll cite third-party sources as well to bolster our claims. So um, not everything, my gut tells me on APT32, Stuart, we didn't throw the whole enchilada in the report, that we probably had a couple other things uh, that we left out. I would think uh, that you always that's want to definitely do that. the case in other ones, yeah. One of the things that I, I think you have in, to, yeah. yeah. One of the things that comes yeah. up in this area is people say, well, <clears throat> these are all just things that could be faked. Uh, and I suppose any yeah. one of them could be faked, but if it's 650 yeah. things that can be faked and you hold back some, uh, the idea that somebody's going to successfully false flag one of these operations is uh, uh, pretty uh, uh, unlikely. Yeah, there's certain forensic residue that's harder to fake, that you're less inclined to fake. And an example would be a lot of times bad actors, when they get valid credentials, they'll use remote desktop as their backdoor, quite frankly. They'll just log in. And and what you'll see is the NetBIOS name of a machine and the character set on the keyboard pass. Those are harder things to fake because they're part of the protocol itself. And you get... You know, and so we don't always share everything because sometimes that's how we ID things. You know, it used to be hard to fake compilation date. And then you can see folks, you know, inside the malware or the environment the malware was made in. But we both know when you do offense, you can use public tools and just try to masquerade as just a, a, a random group. Most nations like the Vietnamese are using private tools below the radar. And the reason most nations will use private tools that are modular in their framework is because they need to be able to adapt to the defenses and be able to adapt very quickly to AV updates and other things. The option I haven't seen used yet, but I'm most concerned about, you mentioned it, masquerading as another nation. Because I do believe modern offensive capabilities, they always have that option at their disposal to use the infrastructure that Russia uses or China uses in their common attacks and then also use their malware, their naming conventions, and a lot of the criteria we look at. I think they do have the masquerading capability. I don't think I've ever witnessed it, and you nailed it. you got to get it all right. Otherwise, we'd see the inconsistencies and in, in all that trace evidence. So the, the the after you've run these uh, uh, attribution uh, uh, characteristics, mm-hmm. uh, I, it, it struck me that the kinds of things that the Vietnamese are doing were pretty sophisticated. I mean, you called them novel and impressive. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's a complete modular system. They've developed their own backdoors. Yeah. Um, how good yeah. are they? I, it works. That's the challenge. You know, their, their documents are good. They show language capabilities, native language capabilities. Uh, and that, by the way, is hard, you know, but um, so if they're attacking an English-based company, they have the English language skills in their Lerd documents. Uh, their techniques circumvent, uh, you know, their spear phishing is good, and their malware circumvents AV detection. And that's two of the big requirements you need to be successful. Got to be able to dupe the end user into hacking themselves. And then you have to make sure that whatever you put in place uh, is surreptitious to the network-based countermeasures 
and endpoint-based countermeasures, and this group's going to do it. So it's going to present a problem. I, I can't believe that they operate anywhere near the scale of the ch- uh, Chinese operations or even Russian operations because you just haven't seen them that often. So either they're exercising constraint and they're reserved and they're targeting, or they just don't have uh, widespread scale capability yet. Uh, but their techniques work against the most common defenses we see deployed. To tell the truth, if I, if, if I were to guess yeah. what their target um, market share looks like, I would guess that China is yeah. 60% or 70% of what they want. Chinese companies, Chinese government, that, that's yeah. not an easy relationship, mm-hmm. and I'd be hacking the Chinese if yeah. I were the Vietnamese, and, and, and everybody else is a target of opportunity, but who knows. Uh, uh, so if the Vietnamese are this good, I mean, they were not on anybody's mm-hmm. radar five years ago. So uh, actually, neither were the North Koreans, neither were the Iranians. Who else is good that yeah. we just aren't seeing? That's a great question. I can tell you just from our standpoint, we're seeing Iran a lot more. And we're seeing when we respond to intrusions in the Middle East that we would attribute to state-sponsored actors of some sort from Iran, their behaviors and rules of engagement are much more aggressive when they're hacking U.S. companies. But we are responding to them while you and I are talking right now. We're responding to Iran and the U.S. at several different companies. And I think they're getting uh, – their scale has increased. Yeah. That, that, so I can tell they're getting more aggressive. Um, I would actually and, – and by the way, we never quite know the outer boundaries of capability. I think right now, because we're at times of peace, and I'll put that in quotes – we're probably seeing only 70% of the capability of Iran. I, I'm pretty sure they probably have another gear, but they don't need to exercise the higher advanced gears because they're just getting in and doing what they're doing. So it's always hard for me to opine on how good they are because their doctrine might be, well, you know, don't waste the good stuff till we're at, you know, war and we have a real issue. Yeah, I think um, you're so right. So I feel like yeah. the, those the yeah. DDoS attacks they did on U.S. banks was Clearly self-limited, yeah. for example. Yeah, they're, they're far better than I thought they were, quite frankly. What we're seeing from Iran, they are able to get in. They are able to steal valid credentials. They are able to uh, get mission accomplished and exfil the data that they're seeking. So, But I feel like their operation doesn't have anywhere near the counter-forensics that Russia could choose to have when they do an operation. So let's uh, – uh, we're, we're coming toward the end. I want to uh, – uh, cover North Korea because there's a lot of uh, buzz now suggesting that uh, North Korea was behind the WannaCry uh, ransomware worm that uh, everybody is struggling with, or at least uh, half the world is struggling yeah. with. Um, uh, I think Symantec had something out on that. Uh, the, uh, the forensics start starting to add up. Uh, where do you fall in terms of uh, attributing that to uh, uh, the North yeah. Koreans? Well, and, and I haven't spoken to our 200 plus threat analysts on this one. And I, I just a few days ago, I was in New York and somebody asked the same question. And I had the caveat, well, 50% of the time I'm wrong, <laughs> which is kind of funny. I don't know if I'm wrong that much, Stuart, but a lot of times, you know, I've been responding to breaches for over two decades now. And my sense on this one, at least at the highest level of abstraction, is I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. At the first uh, at the highest level of abstraction, though, it sure shows the importance of attribution and how difficult it can be, because this was an indiscriminate attack. Right. There's also an internal attack, meaning it really should not have been effective across the Internet. When you look at the NetBIOS ports or the, the, 
the server message block, you know, port 445 being the spreading mechanism, generally that means you got to hack in first and then you go after port 445 as your attack vector. So I was surprised how widespread it got. And if I was surprised, my gut tells me maybe the guy who wrote this was surprised. Yeah, you I've know, heard it, that it, theory it just too. To propagate. That, that, that they yeah. had a kind of crappy little ransomware worm, and then they dropped this yeah. eternal blue uh, SMB attack into it, and yeah. suddenly it just spread everywhere. Yep. And, and, and uh, yeah. it may have blown what was a beta that they were just testing. Yeah, I just, you know, on the testing thing, though, I've, I've had a challenge on that one because testing spreaders, obviously, this is the outcome that could happen. And, and you know, I've heard people mention, well, maybe this was just a forerunner for something worse. I, I, I To me, that's like doing a dry run if you're going to rob a bank. It doesn't make <laughs> that much sense because you might get spotted doing it. It, it. it just, this one's a tough one for me because ostensibly you think, well, the motive was to make money, but was it? So I have a tough time, but it does show clearly attribution can be complicated, especially in an attack that just spreads on its own. Um, my initial theories, though, were just it smelled to me like not necessarily a state-sponsored activity. I could be totally wrong. It'll be fun to see what emerges from this, but it was so indiscriminate, so not targeted at least on the surface, and uh, so it, it could be a wide range. Uh, yeah. the, 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 yeah. the people who are tracking the Bitcoin accounts that the money is going into say that it, they yeah. made about a hundred thousand bucks on it. Uh, it uh, that, uh, yeah. that really is hardly worth even Kim Jong Un's time. It, exactly. That that to me. But then I. That's why I wonder: was it really about making money? And I, I just don't know. It, uh, on the surface, though, this reeks of somebody, you know, even potentially a lone actor. Yeah, somewhere in Eastern Europe that crafted something together, released it, went, wow, that got, you know, broader than I thought it might. But I, you know, I could be totally wrong. So. All right. Uh, Kevin, uh, any, uh, reports coming out uh, in the near future that we should be watching for or other developments? Uh, I, I always give our guests a chance to plug anything that's coming up that we should be watching for. Speeches you'll be giving that, uh, uh, that we, we might want to attend. No, no, nothing I can think of right now. I'm missing that opportunity because as you were phrasing the question, I immediately was thinking, are we about to have APT 33 report come out? <laughs> uh, I don't think there's one coming out with an, you know, imminently. So. All right. Well, we'll cover it on the podcast if it does. Uh, uh, Kevin Mandia, thank yeah. you so much for uh, uh, appearing on the program and uh, uh, we mm-hmm. look forward to having you back. Thank you very much, Stuart. I appreciate it. All right. This has been uh, episode 166 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, be sure to send us your suggestions for interviews. Uh, if they appear on the show, we'll send you a highly coveted Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast mug, complete with logo. Uh, send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Stay tuned for a se- special episode on virtual currency and blockchain applications coming up soon. Uh, we hope you all Join us for that and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.